going? Was that we, us going? I was going to start going unless you... You didn't want me to keep talking about uh, six-foot party subs? <laughs> Chris, people do not collect six-foot party subs. They I mean, eat? Even, they, exactly. They that, eat them. They eat them. <laughs> That's what you could do instead. They collect them in their bellies. And then poop them out. This is a good intro, right? It's all going in. You're only, I'm giving you enough noose. Enough rope? I'm giving you enough noose to make a rope out of it. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to make a noose. This is already, this has already gone haywire. <laughs> do, do the intro. We, that's already gone haywire. Our plan for doing two episodes has already gone haywire. This is the Pink Smoke Podcast with your host, Christopher Funderberg and John Cribbs. A couple of Diaboliques here to talk about a little movie called Diabolique or Les Diaboliques by the great Henri Jorge Clouseau. How you doing today, Chris? <laughs> is that is that the pronunciation we're going with, Henri George Clouseau? I always thought George was pronounced in a foreign Georg, way. Georg, probably. Henri yeah. Georges Clouseau. H.G. Clouseau. We could go with, although that makes it The sound best like artist named H.D. of all time. There's no other HG that can compare to him. Never. Those guys are invisible to me. Um, That's interesting. My son today was like, is the Invisible Man book good? And I was like, that's a movie, not a book. And he's like, the HG Wells. And I was like, I'm a fucking moron. That was literally <laughs> how the exchange went. Uh, Thinking of the Wolfman, which is a movie and not a book. Uh, those are books. Yeah, they are. Well, is Dracula a book? Of course it is. I was thinking the movie's based on the play, though. What the fuck is this for an episode of Diabolique? Everything has gone haywire already, John. Well, it's a film. I, about I've already education. demonstrated a, a, a complete lack of cinema knowledge, top <laughs> to bottom here. Well, it's a film set in a school, and we're just showing that even though we both graduated from film school, we know nothing about movies. I think that's what we want to make clear before we get into this film. <laughs> this is, you know, it's funny. It's we're doing this. It's for October, although these episodes are evergreen. You can listen to them any time of year. We're doing it in October because we wanted to do something sort of spooky-ish to go into the Halloween season, something horror-ish, something uh, uh, diabolical for it and we settled on this i'm not really sure why apart from that clouseau is one of my very favorite filmmakers and we haven't ever talked about him on the podcast i don't think his name has come up even once ever in any capacity let alone the 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 uh you know it's well it didn't really come up because i constantly <laughs> mispronounce uh quad or or fev k days or fairs no, I know he's somebody who's come up a little bit, but I was I was thinking about him where going into this episode, he's one of those weird things where it's weird for me to talk about him because I sort of am like, not that I know too much. I'm just like steeped in it. So I don't know where the handle is. I don't know, like, should we go into it? Do I have to explain his background and what Continental Film was? was? Do we have to talk about where his career rent? Do people, you know, how much of this do we have to talk about? How do we have to dig into it? Because for me, you know, it's funny. I was thinking going into this, um, you know, I always make the joke, you know, it's impossible to say what the greatest film of all time is. It's just, it's, there's no way to pick one movie above all the others and say this is the greatest film of all time, but it's The Seven Samurai. <laughs> Right. It's Absolutely. the seven samurai yeah. with the wages of fear. I have the same thing where it's like you couldn't possibly pick a pop 
top five films of all time, pick the five greatest and most essential movies of all time. It would just be too difficult. But Wages of Fear is in there. You know, yeah. it's the same the same sort of feeling with it, where it's like, if we're being realistic about something extremely subjective, if we're being as objective as possible, Wages of Fear by H.D. Clouseau, Henri George Clouseau, is um, definitely one of the greatest movies ever made. Don't you think that's fair to say? Well, I'm glad you brought it up, and I'm glad that you had, like, a solid inquiry coming into this episode, because I did too. I always think about this movie... Uh, I think about Andre Bazin's original review for this film back when it came out. He called it a perfect film and also a minor achievement compared to The Wages of Fear at the same time. <laughs> and it's it's perfect because I always think of it the same way. I think of Diabolique as like a near perfect film, one of the greatest films ever made and probably not in my top three clues of. It's yeah. weird. It's a strange I kind of want like to fig to, to work that out and like have you explain to me why I have that feeling, why I'd be like, Diabolique, one of the best films ever made, no question. Eh, it maybe is maybe it's in my top five of his movies. It's, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think that it's obviously he has a pair of twin masterpieces in Wages of Fear and Diabolique. I think most people would agree those are the towering achievements of his career. But if you watch them next to each other, there's no question that Wages of Fear is so much more monumental as an artwork. And actually watching it this time, um, not to jump too far ahead of ourselves, um, Wages of Fear not to belittle it in any way, it's shot outside, it features a lot of vistas, it features a lot of set pieces and landscapes, and those are things that are very, very easy to film. An idiot can take their camera and point it at the landscape and just, I guess, put the horizon either at the bottom of the frame or the top of it and make a fucking masterpiece, right? You know, this is, this is you can actually, anybody can go out and do an incredible landscape and point a camera at it and have harrowing things happen inside of it. This is not to take anything away from Wages of Fear, which is an absolute masterpiece. Uh, and he certainly does a great job if, if he's not an idiot pointing a camera at a landscape. He's a genius pointing a camera at a landscape. Diabolique is much higher degree of difficulty to have almost every scene in the movie be two or three people talking in a room. Right. And to make it as cinematic of an achievement with just a couple of people speaking together in a room to build set pieces out of very mundane locations, like an under furnished uh, boarding school bedroom or a uh, small apartment bathroom. That's much, much harder to do. You don't have the advantage of sort of, you know, the beauty of God's creation. You have these little studio bands sets in which you're trying to do just as much work as you're doing with Wages of Fear. And I think that's the reason that when you put them next to each other, one feels smaller than the other. And I think for most people, uh, it would, except that, um, you know, I think that it's a very logical reaction in that yeah. way. And that one is a very small, incredibly intimate, incredibly um, sustained and focused movies. They both, they both are. They're both essentially endless set pieces when you watch both of them they have such an incredible narrative focus and drive it's it's almost unbelievable how focused narratively these two movies are but diabolique somehow even more so than wages of fear which has the preamble in the small town before they actually get out into the trucks right um and 
And I think with Diabolique, it just stays so hyper-focused. There's like five minutes of setup maybe, and then you're into the murder plot and it's the murder plot and trying to get away with it for the rest of the movie, you know? And it's basically the murder sequence starts almost immediately at the beginning of the film, you know, maybe 10 minutes in and it goes until the hour mark is when they, they finally uh, dump him in the pool. Let's um, for people who haven't seen either of them, let's just, John, take us through the plot of Diablo League and wages of fear while we're at it just real briefly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to go into Wages of Fear because I hadn't prepared for that. But Wages of Fear is very simple. Is some desperate men in South America are contracted to uh, drive some very volatile transport trucks through the jungle. These trucks will basically blow up because uh, uh, they're transporting nitro. It's the original Watch Out for the Nitro movie, right? Uh, where people are transporting nitro that's going to blow up. Um it's they just got to transport it through the jungle and these these trucks being jostled uh, even slightly will explode. And that's it. Four desperate men taking on a suicide mission. Watch out for the nitro. That's it. Mm, sounds like a bit of a rip off a of sorcerer, but OK. <laughs> uh, it's not a film about the supernatural. <laughs> In Diabolique, we've got a provincial boys boarding school, right, is the main setting of the film. And the principal there is this man, uh, Michel, who is uh, a complete asshole, right? I mean, he's just a tyrant. He's a dictator. He is uh, a tormentor, especially of these two women who work at the school. One of them is his wife, Christine, who, you know, comes from this background in Venezuela where she was a nun and has, you know, now moved to this uh, small town in France outside of Paris where she has used her money, her family's money, because she's you know, from a very wealthy background to actually buy this school and basically finance it. But this man that she's married is kind of the, the principal of the school and taking over everything. So he torments her and he is horrible to her and also to uh, Nicole, played by uh, Simone Signore, who is uh, a teacher there who's also his mistress. And it's an open secret that they are, you know, there's this love triangle going on where he is involved with both these women at the same time. So the two women decide... Let's get rid of them. And the audience is with them pretty much right in because we see what an absolute piece of shit this guy is. But their their plot is kind of like the perfect murder plot where they're going to lure him to another town. They're going to drug him and drown him and then bring him back to the school and dump him in this, this uh, fetid pool, this disgusting pool in the back of the pool, back of the school and have him be discovered there like he had drowned and that's their big idea and then now with that back to school ride. with that with that back to school slip now i'm picturing rodney dangerfield diving doing the triple lindy the into triple that lindy. into that fetid pool oh, of water behind diabolique oh no just diving right in there and uh you did not mention that the uh that the tyrant the boarding school tyrant is played by paul maurice uh who i mainly think of as being a jean-pierre melville guy because of second breath and army of shadows um but i think most people when they think of him think of diabolique i think this is his signature role uh by a country mile um no question. although it's nice to see him and simone signore reunite in army of shadows 
Yes. Um, and he's kind of like, if you don't know what he looks like, he's kind of got this this bogardish, unattractive, shouldn't be tough. He doesn't look like a tough guy, but somehow this like sort of uh bulldogish hangdog face translates into tough guyness somehow. It's interesting. He's got an interesting look, but he's not like a good looking guy traditionally. He's he's definitely got that uh that 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 bogardish ugly man charisma to him i think yeah especially in this film just the way he carries himself with an authority that you can see why everyone would be scared of him like literally everyone in this film is scared of him the two women the um two other teachers the male teachers who work there monsieur drain and monsieur herbeau uh and uh, all the children are terrified of him as well and uh literally it stacks the deck against this guy right off the bat i mean you just want to see this guy die you want to see them get away with it especially when we get into the character of his wife uh christine played by vera clouseau who of course is married to henri g clouseau at the time and uh because she kind of immediately what's the what what do you know about the background of vera cluzo exactly i mean she obviously only acted in films by her husband well uh she was the uh wife of an actor who's in a cluzo film and he stole her away from him she was brazilian uh they got married and um he was absolutely in love with her by all accounts right and he um she has a small role in wages of fear he met her and um they went to Brazil together. She was Brazilian. They went to Brazil together to make a documentary of some kind. This film was never completed, like Lanfar, his one of his famously uncompleted, incomplete films. There's a whole documentary constructed out of the missing footage from Lanfar. But uh, but he, um, they went to Brazil together, and he kind of had the idea to make a documentary. Nothing really comes of it. Uh, but this trip to Brazil inspired the way of fear it's what made him want to make the wages of fear the book was a hit book and he read it and he said oh i've just been down in this place i know how to make this movie with incredible texture and veracity i'm going to do it he wrote the part for his wife it's not in the book he wrote that part specifically for vera vera cluzo she's the only uh woman in it and he uh wrote that for her then after that movie came out um he followed it up with Diabolique and his idea on Diabolique, he was telling everybody in the world that he can make a star out of anybody, that he could just make a star out of anyone. He was going to make a star out of her. And he had, in fact, made um, a star out of the uh, actors in Manon, which was uh, one of his early movies where he had cast unknowns and sort of made them in the famous people. He had made the career of his first wife, Susie Dallaire, in um, K in uh, K Days Are Fair and Murderer Lives at 21, right? He had sort of written, same thing, written these roles specifically for her. And those movies, everybody says that she's just, that the character is Susie Dallaire, that he had written it very specifically for her. And she had become a star too. So his idea was that he'd do it again because he had a track record of doing this. He was very confident about doing this. What's weird is to me about Vera Clouseau, who of everybody I've just mentioned, I find her to be the best actress, but her reputation is that she's terrible and that she's specifically terrible in these movies, which I find to be Looney Tunes. I really love her in Diabolique. She has a fragility and frailness and uncertainty to her, but I think it's 
absolutely perfect for the part. And I think that there's also something, he was a notorious onset, Clouseau was a notorious onset manipulator and somebody who would try and provoke emotions out of his actors and break them and interact with them in very intense, unorthodox ways. And I think that he very purposely cast her as an uncertain unknown against two very well-established actors in Paul Maurice and Simone Signoret, who treated her with contempt, uh, apparently, that they really did not have much sympathy for her being an unknown. And then he really worked her hard in it, uh, apparently. And I think that that you can feel all that in the performance. She is an outsider. It's and we should say, I, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, um, this movie very famously ends with a title card, which is don't be a devil. Don't ruin the interest your friends could take in this film. Right. Um, don't tell them what you saw. Thank you for them. Right. This is what the final title is because it, it has a famous twist ending. Everybody go watch the movie on every podcast. We talk about movies all the way through. We spoil all the twists. And this is a movie that has a really, really big twist to it. But to speak about the movie and speak about how it was made and what's interesting about it, you have to address that twist and we're not going to dance around it. So turn it off right now and go watch it if you don't know it or don't want the ending spoiled. I think the movie works great even with the twist spoiled. Unlike a, a lot of twist-based movies, I think this movie plays just as well for me the fifth or sixth time I've seen it as it did the first time uh, for me. But so that's just to, to take you real quickly through Vera Clouseau. That's that's the story with her. Uh, do you want me to go? It's <laughs> her full story to keep it going is they make a movie after this called uh, Le Espions, The Spies. Um, and that movie's not great. Uh, uh, it stars um, Peter Ustinov and it's most famous for a scene where Vera is freaking out and like tearing these pillows, these feather pillows to shreds and the feathers are going everywhere where right um and vera in real life like her character in diabolique had serious heart problems and she has to retire from acting in 1957 after filming this scene he literally pushes her so hard that she can't act anymore she stops acting anymore nobody's been sympathetic to her as an actor actually uh he um uh uh, mystery Picasso becomes between Diabolique and Espions. I don't know if I mentioned that. I don't know if I made it sound like Espions is directly after. Doesn't matter. Um, and then she dies when she's 46, three years after Espions in, in 1960. So she dies very young too. And it's, you know, it's probably because of these uh, heart problems. What I think is interesting John, I'm just talking too much. Do you, do you have I explained Vera well enough? Can I go off on my tangent? Yes. Let me go back to three or four things I wanted to comment <laughs> on that you were just discussing. Go through them. Let me go back go. to let me go back to Vera Clouseau and as an actor. Okay. Yes. I, I completely see gorgeous. what people are talking about. She's absolutely stunning. She is one of the most gorgeous women ever on film. Um, that is that is no question. And I would fight anyone in a duel, you know, who who disagreed with that. But in terms of the acting, I see what people are talking about. Uh, she's clearly, you know, inexperienced compared to some of these other guys who were in the movie. 
And as you said, it works in her favor because she's supposed to be this demure. They call her a cute little ruin, right? She's this uh, just a broken person, more or less. You know, she's been completely broken down by this horrible man she's married to and uh, her religious background, which, you know, of course, they're going to use to manipulate her. You know, her superstitions are going to play a big role in this, you know, kind of moving forward, this plot that's been constructed against her that we're going to get into with all these spoilers. Um, But she is introduced much like uh, Michelle Paul Maurice's character is introduced as unquestionably an asshole and that we all are are meant to hate. She is introduced with her tension ratcheted up to about eight, maybe nine. (laughs) And it doesn't lower for the rest of the film. Even when she is lying down resting, she looks like she would just jittery and uncertain shoot right out of the bed. If she heard like a mouse running across the floor, she is just on a tight wire the entire time. You could cut it with a freaking child scissors. That's how like, it, that's how tense she is throughout this whole film. And it seems like the, the method here with Clouseau is probably to tell her that's what I want from you. Stay, stay with it. You know, never, never, lower that amount of tension that you have inside of you because well the method was probably to make her feel that way he was he was a notorious tormentor he gets we'll go into it he gets although it's not interesting to me he gets called the french hitchcock a lot and he has a similar sort of um a reputation for being a manipulator of actors as as Hitchcock was seen as being a puppet master and a maestro, you know, um, in, in some essay I read by Danny Perry, I have no idea where I read this anymore. Perry points out that as as Hitchcock said, actors should be treated like cattle. Um, Clouseau used to say that actors are my instruments, right? They have that same attitude about playing the actors and, and molding them and completely just being in charge of it. And he would would do crazy things. He was probably, you know, blaring a trumpet in the middle of the night at their house to wake her up. <laughs> he famously didn't need to sleep at all. He only slept three hours a night, every night, like somebody I know that I'm doing a podcast with right now. And I no doubt he used all of that time to disrupt her sleep patterns during Diaboli because she looks just positively jittery and miserable. Yeah, the very definition of it. And it works. Whatever he did, it works. And bad news for Ellen Burstyn, obviously, because his disciple, William Friedkin, would take the similar method in some of his <laughs> earlier films and torment his actors in a similar way. Um, the man who made Sorcerer, you know, based on Wages of Fear. But it works for the film because she seems so demure and so uh, and so out of her league. It gets to a point because you obviously you sympathize with her, but you don't necessarily empathize with her throughout this movie you know because Simone Signore is such a cool customer she is just you know so bitter even she's got everything even she's world. got nerves John yeah um I and you just you, you clearly you fall in love with Simone Signore right away because she is such a cool customer even when she is wearing sunglasses to uh cover the black eye she's gotten from Michelle right she looks cool and She's cool, you know, when they're planning this murder. She's cool when they're carrying it out. She's got it all figured out. She's constantly telling uh, poor Christine, you know, hey, come on, I need your help here. I need you to get with the app, and I need you to get with it. I need you to focus. I need you to help me out here. 
you start getting mad at Christine in this movie because um, Nicole has everything so laid out so perfectly. And because, you know, you're like, be more like her. She's got it all figured out, which again, if you know the big twist and you're watching it, you're like, oh, you know, you're kind of feeling like, oh, that's why she's got it all figured out. That's why she's so cool and everything like that. I would say one thing about not and your you as an audience are manipulated the same way Vera's character is of toughen up and do it, fucking toughen up and do it. You know, as an audience, you're telling her, this guy's a scumbag, like get get tough, don't let him kill you, don't let him literally, because your character has a heart condition, don't let this guy literally kill you, fight back the way Signorette would, right? You as mm-hmm. an audience are telling her to do it the way her character's stealing herself. It's yeah. it's a it's not even it's not even empathy. It's like a total he maneuvers an audience into total identification with her. You're being manipulated as an audience the same way she's being manipulated. Because the big twist is that will make all that what we're saying make sense is that Signorette and Mar- uh, Maurice are in on it together that they planned it together that to cause her to have a heart attack, right? That they're in on this fake murder plot where he's going to pretend to be murdered and then show up as a ghost, uh, sort of creeping her out until she freaks out and dies, right? This is the big twist. So the audience is manipulated in the same thing where it's like, you know, do this, do the murder, you know, you're rooting for her to do the things that are going to be her downfall that are falling into their trap. You're, you're kind of wanting her to do the things that end up destroying her. You know, it's a great trick that gets played on the audience. Yeah. Because you're rooting for this murder to happen. That's why Clouseau has set it up so perfectly that this victim is someone you want to see die. This is a woman you want to see free of him. And she has this religious background where she has a clear martyr complex, where she is more willing to let herself die, you know, be destroyed by this guy than to, you know, get him out of her life. And she's not willing to divorce him because of Catholic law. It's a mortal sin. And the whole time you're watching it and thinking, like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> You'd really rather murder this guy than go through the, the you know, the act of divorcing him. And, use, you know, when she uses divorce, you know, just as a way to get him up there. It's it's hilarious because you're thinking like it would be this simple that you know to get away from him, call him up, say I got a lawyer, I retained a lawyer, and now we're, we're splits. You know it's done. She can't even do that. Like you know for her, it's he steamrolls her thing. Yeah, exactly. He's he so steamrolls her. You feel like no, the divorce would life. never work. She wouldn't make it through that process. She mm-hmm. would get. She would die trying to go through with that process of divorce, just as much as as she w- will ultimately die trying to go through the process of murder. That mm-hmm. being trapped with this awful person in in her life is going to kill her what's funny is because of this movie before i knew her background because of this movie and wages of fear this movie it says she's from caracas and she's got the very dark black hair i assume she was venezuelan for a really long time it sort of shocked me to see photos of her with her natural hair color and find out she's from brazil and be like oh she's very brazilian looking actually (laughs) if you see if you see her but they these movies do uh because wages of fear is also set in an unnamed south american country um they they really set her up as like traditional latina and then i was listening to her accent and wages of fear now that i speak a fair amount of spanish and have been around spanish speakers a lot more and it's like oh my god her spanish accent is fucking terrible in wages of fear <laughs> she clearly spanish is clearly not her first language which i never would have uh would have gotten before and this time it got me again i was like because i was like why did i why was i 
into the impression for so long that she's Venezuelan. Uh, and then it was like, oh, because this movie says she's from Caracas. And speaking where places people are from, you know what I noticed this time that I thought was funny? The little town where Simone Signoret lives, where they go to commit the murder Where is Cluzo i don't know how born, to say right yeah it's it's nort i don't know how you say it n-o-r n-o-i-r-t or nort Noro. yeah i don't know Noro. i don't know how we're going to murder these french fucking <laughs> everything on this episode and i can't wait till they're dead um yeah and i thought that was really funny because that and they film some there to see like this little town mm-hmm. uh he grew up in well speaking of her hair also i just want to throw out uh her very very bizarre uh pigtails that she wears and the way that she wears her hair again just they seem like they've just been knotted within it to an inch of their <laughs> life you know they could not be any tenser and they're kind of like they're not just like flowing down her shoulders they're like coming tied. like tied together they're tied together back. like a noose it, it yeah. kind of looks like a noose on the back Absolutely. of her head yeah uh it's really um it's really interesting it's really it's just every little detail of this movie i like just to did you have more about her because i don't want to keep cutting no, it off ahead. i go keep ahead. jumping around no when i was thinking about noart noart norit <laughs> um that um Clouseau as a young man, what I was going to lead back to in talking about her heart problems, which get brought up a lot in the context of their relationship and something that interesting to me doesn't get brought up a lot. Um, When he was a young man, he wanted to be a writer. He comes from like a sort of artsy family. His dad owned a bookstore and his uncle was like a, a gallery owner who like knew Picasso. He comes from this sort of artsy background. Um, and he was just trying to be uh, a writer, right? And then when he was 27, he almost died of tuberculosis. He got tuberculosis like back when it was a death wish, right? And for four years, he couldn't work, right? For four years, he can't work at all. He's not able, he's literally running out of money. He's almost completely broke. At the end, he's having to ask friends for money just to continue surviving in the sanatorium, right? And then when he gets out, war breaks out basically immediately as soon as he's released from the sanatorium. But I think it's always interesting. Her health problems get brought up a lot as far as he pushed her so much. He also had incredible health problems and he pushed himself too much. Famously on Lawn Far, he has a heart attack while filming, you know, a hot lesbian love scene in a boat. Um, my man, my man Clouseau, giving the audiences what they want. And um, he basically, he's constantly pushing himself too hard as well he's constantly pushing himself almost to the brink of death with with what he's doing is something that i think is interesting they do feel like sort of soulmates to me in a very traditional way they feel like twin stars in some way they just feel so deeply connected in such a profound way their artistic lives their their personal lives their health lives their sort of mental spaces just feel so intertwined as much two people who meet and go into artistic land fair together Yes. Yeah. But as much as I like uh, The Murderer Lives at 21 and K-Days or Affairs, which are the two he does with his first wife, Susie Dallaire, he doesn't become 
a guy who has an argument as the greatest filmmaker who ever lived until he meets Vera and until he goes to Brazil and decides to make wages of fear. If he doesn't have wages of fear and Diablo leak, you know, who, who is he? He's not even, he's not even Marcel Carnet at that point. You know what I mean? He's like an Autant Lara type of like, oh yeah, that guy, you know, Mm -hmm. without those two movies, as interesting as I find some of his other movies. And I love the mystery of Picasso and I like uh, Spions more than most do, you know, and I do really, really like K-Day's Affair quite a bit. And, you know, I enjoy uh, uh, um, A Murderer Lives at 21 as much as anybody else. Um, Maybe he wouldn't. Le Corbeau is important enough movie that he still might be an important figure. I think if you remove Wages of Fear and Diabolique from his filmography, Le Corbeau becomes a really big monumental film. Well, that's you know, what I was going I, to say in response when you were talking about, you know, this compared to Wages of Fear being scaled down and more intimate and interior and uh, also being, you know, a very much a genre film. There's a straight up thriller uh, and murder mystery uh, that those obviously are things that make Wages of Fear seem like a more ambitious and kind of bigger work. But even Le Corbeau, which is also very intimate and very interior and, you know, a mystery at its core. Suffocating. Feels, yeah, it feels like a bigger, more important thing as an artwork than this does you know that's one of the things where i say like i would consider that more important in his filmography than diabolique it's not that it is necessarily but it just feels like diabolique is divorced from the rest of his work for some reason like if i well, was to say the important yeah. cluzo films you know it's like yeah. it's corbeau it's wages of fear you know it's those kind of movies but i agree if he had just done those films and you know if his banning you know after uh, the war. Well, I was going like to say, let's let's thing. let's get into Le Corbeau and dig into all of that. Sure. I think you're right. Diabolique is more. Um, it's just it's more it's more pure cinema. I don't know how to explain it better than that. Le Corbeau is about big things and things that are happening at the time and. Um, and get him into trouble and and are meaningful they get him trouble from a bunch of different angles because everybody mad yeah (laughs) um but diabolique is is just it's much more like if you're apt to think of hitchcock as one of the greatest filmmakers who ever lived you will think of diabolique as one of the greatest films ever made i think that's the difference and for me and you we're people who are not apt to think of hitchcock as one of the greatest filmmakers who ever lived so i think you and i diminish diabolique maybe some in that context not not me i understand what you're saying but i also love it an intense amount i love it i love diabolique go do not get me wrong so let's jump back to when he was 27 uh he gets tuberculosis he spends four years in a sanitarium when he gets out war breaks out right france gets occupied almost immediately he's not rich his dad owned a bookstore right So uh, before Germany gets occupied, right, he goes to uh, before France gets occupied by Germany, before France gets occupied by Germany, he gets sent to work in Germany at UFA translating scripts, right? He becomes the the head of their their script department, right? Um, He always writes that that screenwriting would be more towards his 
considering his delicate health that would well, be it's, being a director at the time it's yeah but he's just got a job translating german scripts for the foreign markets essentially is what he's doing working for ufa and while he's working for ufa the nazis are really consolidating their power and and expanding around right and the nazis because ufa is the national film uh production studio in germany it's run by the nazis and he actually gets fired because he's um got really strong friendship with the Jewish producers and artists there and sort of refuses to renounce them and wants to keep working with them. So he starts working with these Jewish people. They all obviously get censured there and he sort of won't renounce it. And he was good friends with him. So Ufa decides they have to fire him. He gets sent back to France, right? Then Germany occupies France shortly thereafter, gets taken over. This is, again, within just like a couple years of him being absolutely penniless destitute, coming from like an upper middle class background, a sort of petite bourgeois background, but definitely not a wealthy one. And he's worked for a little bit at UFA. He's out of money again. He's fired again. And this thing called Continental Films comes to France, which is um, this guy, Alfred Greven, runs it, who's uh, who's a Nazi. He's a member of the Nazi parties. Continental Films is a German-run uh, uh, film studio in France, although it's a French film studio, technically. And the idea is we can't show any American movies anymore. We, France, can't show any American movies anymore. They can't show any any movies that might be in any way um, anti anti Germany, anti Italy. So they're going to start producing their own movies again, and they're going to do it through Continental Films. Right? This is going to be the main production game in town. Greven is the classic example of somebody who was uh, associated with the Nazi party purely because he had to be to work. And he really, really, his vision and his pitch was these are apolitical films we're going to make. We're going to fill the entertainment void left by pushing Hollywood out and make and make our just own pure entertainments. And that's what Continental Films is going to do. And so Clouseau had worked with Greven in, in Germany already at UFA. He knew him. So Greven comes to him and pitches Clouseau a job overseeing the screenplay division of Continental Films and says, these are going to be apolitical movies. There's nothing else in town. Uh, take it or leave it. And, you know, you have an opportunity to, um, to continue making movies. And in in fact, you know, Continental Films is a weird thing because people like Marcel Carnet continued to make movies there. They made movies for Continental Films. And in fact, when you look at Continental Films roster, there's quite a few films that are almost nakedly resistance movies, French resistant type movies. Um, they're they are not movies that are German propaganda in any way. I think that some of them are to a certain extent, but there's really an incredible latitude to make an incredible variety of artworks. It's not as cut and dry as like Fellini making propaganda films for Mussolini, making the kind of working on the white telephone movies, right? Rossellini being friends with, with, uh, with Benito Mussolini's son. It's not that sort of situation, right? It's like a guy who was poor who almost died. And when Clouseau talks about it, he's like, I had almost died. I didn't know how much more time I had to live. I wanted to make movies. This was my only option, right? And there's something about that that's incredibly self-serving in light of what's going on. But to me, I find human and sympathetic and sort of belies um, 
<laughs> he's definitely not evil or willing to look overlook evil. He's just incredibly driven to be an artist, which is a, a different problem than how you might frame him, right? And, um, and it should also be pointed out that two thirds of people working in France under the occupation, right? They worked for Germany directly, two thirds of French citizens, right? Of people working in France, not French citizens, right? They worked for Germany. So this is a very common thing to do. It's not like he was an outlier. You know who didn't, John? You know who didn't work for fucking Germany? Chris our Long. boy, our boy Jean-Pierre Melville. He was too busy getting strapped up for Angration Drangoon. Put some lead in those Nazi fucking asses. True resistance here, resistance fighter, Jean-Pierre Melville, one of the greats. You know who was working with Germany? Pretty pretty closely, Jose Giovanni. Jose G, the great Jose Giovanni, who wrote Second Breath for Melville. Bit of a uh, bit of a uh, unresolvable irony there. So um Four continental films for Grevin. He does scripts for two movies, right? That are sort of like light, entertaining thrillers. And those movies are successful. So Grevin lets him direct the sequel to one, which is The Murderer Lives at 21. Uh, and that's the one he makes to star his his wife, Susie Dallaire. And it's that is like a goofy like it's almost like knives out or something it's like it's it's a murder mystery that mainly exists to be funny you know is is how i would describe that that's a fair description right uh you can say yes they're not going to see you nodding your head on the podcast john they're not going to see any of these gestures you're making is it an ambiguous one who knows do ladies and gentlemen do you want me to describe it to you we've got a big bearded man nodding his head um murder at, lives at 21 is successful so then now he does le corbeau right and which is his big controversial movie am i explaining all this coherently john are you following the story so far yes i am chris i'm going to fucking throw you out the window you're gonna get it when we record this tiff thing i was gonna go easy on you but the truth is gonna come out now so it's based on Le Corbeau is based on the real phenomenon in some real cases of poison pen denunciation letters, which were popular at the time, right? So what you have in France is people sending these denunciation letters, these anonymous denunciation letters to the Vichy government, uh, sort of saying, the, this guy in my small town harbors anti-German sentiments. This guy's acting immoral in some ways. It's basically a real phenomenon of people using Using, uh, anonymous letters to denounce their neighbors and in a lot of cases settle petty grievances, settle uh, petty scores. And and it's really extremely ugly, you know, and they're very, uh, very popular. And this movie, Le Corbeau, is about a slew of poison pen letters hitting this small town. And, you know, it's a mystery who's writing them, where are they coming from. It's a big hit. Uh, uh, Clouseau said it's the only time the press was ever good to him, that it's like basically his only positively well-reviewed movie, right? And it's Continental fires him, of course, because it's seen as being an anti-Vichy, anti-German movie, right? The German government doesn't want this hugely popular movie that's discouraging people from writing poison pen letters and becoming small town collaborators. That's behavior they want to encourage. They, they do not like that he's made this movie, right? 
he's essentially, you know, gets booted for making from Continental for making this film that's anti Vichy. And Grevin, in fact, has a, a series of quotes are like, he thought he was bigger than Continental. I was scared of how fearless he was to sort of throw this in our face. We had to get rid of him, is, a, is essentially the quotes from Grevin about it, right? Something he shares with uh, Seijin Suzuki. He makes a absolutely brilliant film and gets fired for it. <laughs> yes, and makes a film that's very antagonistic towards his financiers as well, like like Seijin did with Carmen from Kawachi. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the war, war ends, tribunals are set up to determine who was a collaborator and who needs to be censured. He's initially, Clouseau is initially banned from directing for life, right? And the reason for this ban is, is that this movie was seen as being um, extremely negative about small town French life at a time when small town France wanted to be celebrated. It's I can compare it to it's like, what if right after 9-11, you made a movie that was like these stupid fuck face farmers from Idaho, you know, from Iowa, you know, everybody be like, you know, like would be like, what the fuck you fuck you, man. You know, we love Heartland America. And you were like, no, America's full of dumb yokels who can't be trusted. You know, like you would not be beloved in that moment. Uh, this life uh, lifetime ban is appealed. It gets reduced to just a, a two year ban. Um, you know, it makes sense that Le Corbeau, uh makes people angry because its theme is essentially like small town France sucks and is full of creeps who are denouncing each other for petty reasons, right? But the context and what you should remember is that there were people who made actual pro-Vichy propaganda who did not get blacklisted. That's how you know it's not about being a collaborator, what happened with him, Right is that there are people who made literal propaganda that did not were not found guilty of being collaborators. It's really that he was a personality type who antagonized a lot of people and and specifically was not afraid to to be a little devilish, right? From to to get into it with people. And so that's um his big like monumental movie for a lot of ways. It but to me it's like lumpy and not as polished and perfect as Wages of Fear and Diabolique. Those are two perfect movies, as you say. It's not a perfect movie at all. It's Mm. got some artistic conceits that are a little embarrassing. It's got some scenes, you know, it's got like placeholder scenes. You know, it's got scenes that don't necessarily work. I think it's a fantastic movie. And like I said, if Wages of Fear and Diabolique didn't exist, he would be the Le Corbeau guy and he would be famous for having made this thing, which is really something and is really a great fucking movie. Uh, it sort of has a twin film to go with it. He made a short film called The Return of Jean, uh, Jean uh god i even botched jean that's how far we're going with this um with the star of k days affair with juvet uh who's the star of, of k days affair and that's a short film that's sort of his like um when he's allowed to return to filmmaking after the two-year ban that's his like you people are all fucking hypocrites and i hate you all movie it's it's a really have you ever seen it yeah mm-hmm it's a really acidic negative movie. It's a, in which he gives every character 
he like steel mans everybody's argument, like everybody who lived under the Vichy government, like what's the best possible version of their argument for why they did what they did. And then he just pours acid on both of, on all of the arguments and just dissolves them. It's, it's one of the most like, um, it, it says a lot about his personality. It's like, okay, you can come back to directing. He's like, great. My new movie's called fuck you. Like that's, that's, and people are like, Oh, guess we should have kept you. You banned. You're making a movie about how you hate all of us again. That's why we banned you in the first place. Got it. Um, but that's sort of like his, his, his twin film to that. And then he makes, you know, then he makes K days are fairs, um, which is just basically, you know, it's about how great Susie Delaire is specifically her ass. That is what K days affair is about is like, God damn, this lady rules and her, her, Big thick tralala, you know that is what that movie is about. Um, but that's taking him God through Corbo. I know I love that movie so much. <laughs> that takes us through uh, Corbo and Continental Films, just to give all the context. Now you talk about Corbo. Now that I've gave my exhausting <laughs> history lesson, off the top of my head, history lesson too. If well, I'm again, getting any of the details wrong, I apologize. That's really just off vomiting up out of my depths of my mind and it's all that that makes sleek Corbo really seem like a monumental work you know and you know as you say it's not as precise and aesthetically perfect as his uh films from the 50s but it just it, it's it has that background to it that you know it's just in your head the whole time that you're watching it and it's a very taut thriller too it's a very entertaining film and i think it informs diabolique and, and return of jean as well in in his you know depiction of people which is bastards right just the nastiest yeah. <laughs> worst people in the world it really informs uh michelle and uh by the end of the film uh nicole in diabolique's the devils themselves you know these people who would do something like this uh but if we're moving chronologically let me talk about the source uh of Diabolique a little bit because that's something I didn't actually know about. Oh yeah, until recently. Yeah, uh, it's based on a novel called "She w- She Who Was No More" or "The Woman Who Was No More," and it's written by the uh, French writing team of. Um, here we go again. Boileau, Narsa Jack. I know how Boileau to say their name. And Narsa Jack, right? Pierre Boileau yeah. and Thomas Narsa Jack. Yeah. And in the book, it's a husband and mistress who drown the wife in a bathtub, uh, and whose body disappears. And turns out that the wife and the mistress are lovers who have set the whole thing up as part of like an insurance scam. That's the big difference between the stories. Yes. Um, that Clouseau switches the sexes. And, He's you know, not, he was not allowed to do that. Okay. He was forced, he was forced to change it. Right. But even more so, I mean, you think obviously if he wants to make this movie as a showpiece for his wife, for Vera Clouseau, yeah. he's got to make her, you know, the the character who's you know the uh, the the main character is going to be in every scene the the, the subject of this plot. it should be pointed out that he he there's a great one of the most dignified and interesting characters in K Days Are Fair is another lesbian subplot and mm. uh, that's he's very progressive as far as like um mixed race people uh racially progressive sexually progressive in his work uh in very sharp contrast to hitchcock who loves to use homosexuality as something to antagonize his audience with and create villains that they'll be grossed out by to cheer against so i only i mention that because that plot makes sense that's that's a kind of story he's attracted to 
controversial i would say well it's yeah it's it's you know it, it's i would he's not, like not the, afraid he's not yeah, afraid of making afraid homosexuals to, real characters in his movies even sure. in the 40s and 50s for sure but i'd say he shares with like someone like paul verhoven you know kind of like more than willing to like represent that community in films but also you know that's going to be like a devious lesbian in the background you know or someone yes. who's like a little bit diabolical herself well because um, everybody's diabolical in this yeah films, for sure you know yeah, absolutely yeah um but you know it's it's, it's he it's, makes them yeah, what i would say is he doesn't make them good or romanticized or noble he makes them full characters yeah, in an yeah, era sure. when they were not allowed when they had to be just the bad guys in rope you know, when they just had to be like, you know, mama's boy, Norman Bates. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Ooh, isn't he weird and disgusting, you know? Um, so it was apparently Vera who actually brought the book, uh, She Who Was No More, to Clouseau's attention. Uh, and he, and I'm sure this is probably, you know, not true, but he supposedly beat Hitchcock to the rights by mere hours, you know, to you not know, to securing not, the bike. This is this is not true. Boyle right. and Narsajek are like, I have no idea where that came from. Sure. They they seem to pinpoint it to um, Hitchcock for some reason. But one thing is definitely true is that he was not going to use that terrible title of the book for his movie. <laughs> and uh, so what he ended up using, of course, well, first it was called The Widows, and then it was called The Demons, and finally Diabolique, which uh, was actually the title of a book by like a 19th century writer named Barbary de Orville. Uh, and to kind of placate, I guess, the estate of this writer, he that's where that opening quote from Diabolique comes from. A portrait is always moral when it is tragic and shows the horror of the things it represents, taken from uh, Dior Lee, because he wanted to use the title, basically, and managed to find something that he thought was thematically kind of linked to the story to kind of pay tribute to this author whose title he was kind of stealing to use for the movie instead. Which I find charming person <laughs> <laughs> um absolutely uh and this this is um boilo narsajek our most our most famous for having written um vertigo vertigo yeah and this is this is there was a, a kind of competition scene between clouseau and hitchcock in this era um and it was in fact you know this this book was on hitchcock's radar in some way and clouseau did end up directing it even though hitchcock had been expressed interest that does seem to be true and um they went to Hitchcock uh, to do Vertigo um, with him, uh, sort of as a result of having missed out on Diabolique. I'm trying to remember what the exact um, what the exact story was because I'm now I'm confusing the myth with what the real story was. The myth is that they specifically wrote Vertigo for him, but that's not the case. Uh, it was a pre-existing book, but their script is definitely a commentary on what Hitchcock is. I think that's why it's Hitchcock's best movie is I think more than any of the other writers they worked with, they have, they have Hitchcock's number and understand him better than he understands himself, which is just that like you're dividing women up into like good women and whores who deserve to die. And that's a fucked up deranged thing to do. That's probably a, a, a result of you having a, a mess up fantasy space right that's what they bring to him with that um and for some reason other writers were afraid to to bring that story to him with that um <laughs> it is funny that when you talk about boilo and uh narsajek you're like the, the three big films made from their works right diabolique <laughs> vertigo 
and body, body parts. parts the great body parts the great brad Darif. it is they're 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 writers that are definitely easy to think of as like titanic in their industry and then you dig into it and they're like god they're just like regular pulp authors they wrote like 50 books and we know about <laughs> three of them because they were made into movies and then you read the books and you're like oh this is fucking stupid you know like yeah, well, like, even, oh. <laughs> even, the, even the novel that they used for Diabolique, even uh, the woman who was no more, you know, having it be an insurance scam. Is, yeah. You know, absurd. Although I, I love just from the opening shots of Diabolique, the way that Clouseau immediately sets up this just decrepit corruption in the atmosphere, just in the air, all these filthy puddles and this disgusting pool in the back of the school and this just rundown chateau that they used to film the school in. You just immediately get the sense of like, this is what people are willing to kill each other for in this movie. This fucking disgusting, decrepit school, you know, like this is the ultimate goal is like, I will have full ownership of this completely (laughs) disgusting place. Bedded water and rotten In the middle of nowhere outside of Paris. One uh, one more thing, you know, the um, Jerome Jeremini? who that is, the co-script writer in a bunch of uh, Clouseau's films. It's his brother, right? It's his brother that he forced to use a pseudonym because he didn't want two Clouseau's on the uh, on the credits, which his brother apparently hated. Just three, did... three Clouseau's, really, right? With oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Who I think is, you know, and like you mentioned, she brings the books to him. She shows him Brazil. She's a really important part of his artistic life. She stars in the movies, obviously. I, I think that she's somebody who I always feel protective of for some reason. I think because the French film establishment in particular is so dismissive of her Absolutely. that when you see interviews with people like Simone Signoret or or uh, Clouseau's second wife in his Clouseau that, or Susie Dallaire, they're like, yeah, she wasn't an actress. She wasn't any good. Very dismissively. And I'm like, Susie Dallaire, you're not any fucking good. You're very charming, but you're not some, you know, fantastic actress here. Like, who are any of you to look Bridget Bardot who are you to criticize anybody's acting although Bridget Bardot I don't think ever criticizes her I think Bridget Bardot is has a much more uh fully um clue HG Clouseau centric relationship to Clouseau I don't think she she knew Vera I mean it's horrible too but like again it works like this this disdain towards little Vera Clouseau in this film uh I you know I always think about more recently the Darren Aronofsky film Mother, where Michelle Pfeiffer comes in and just bats Jennifer Lawrence around like a ma- like a cat with a mouse. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the scenes with Michelle Pfeiffer because she is just this veteran actress who just is cool as shit and just you know has this complete like cynical outlook and just like destroys everyone in the scene with her. And you just love watching it and you love watching Simone Signore do the same thing to Vera Clouseau in this film, where she's just bullying her to like get her to do things. And, you know, trying to get her to, you know, get her, you know, find her grip and actually get go through with this murder. It's a great dynamic. It works so well. And yeah. if, she, if, you know, Simone Signore had to be like a complete bitch to her on set to get that done. High it five. worked. High it five. worked. <laughs> it absolutely worked. Um, yeah. And the movie really is. I don't know what percentage of it is. If you told me somewhere between 50 and 70% of this movie is just is the two of them on screen together. 
I would believe it. You know, it seems like it's got to be at least that amount, the two of them, just either, not just the two of them, but with other actors, but those two on screen together is just a massive amount of the movie. And their dynamic is great because Signorette is so ice cold and unflappable and just um, uh, like a, a weapon you know, and, and, you know, Vera Clouseau is like a lace doily. She's so fragile. She just feels like she'll break when you pick her up. That's how, how she feels throughout the whole movie. Like a porcelain doll. Absolutely. Yeah. Just something that, that could not, that you just don't even want to disturb it. Cause it's not going to make it, you know, mm-hmm. and compared with Signorette, it's a perfect pairing. They're so good together about it. Um, so this is something I'd forgotten after before rewatching it this time when the doctor comes after visiting her the second time and he's leaving with I guess it's the sanitarium director or somebody like that they're in the car together yes and he's oh like, my god I'd forgotten that too yeah he just says uh well why'd you leave her there if she's just gonna die and he's like well you know it's upsetting for the, you know the people in the sanitarium when an ambulance comes to take away a dead body so I'm no just- and it's, it's like oh you right. you you're not getting oh. exactly right. Yeah, the right. university professor who's brought the the specialty doctor there is like, why'd you just leave her there? You know she's really rich and has no heirs, right? Which is like you could have fucking milked every dollar out of her, even though she's going to die. And the sanitarium director says, well, it would have been really disturbing to see anybody leaving my uh my my place in a hearse. Right. 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 But it's so fucked. But the line is so fucked up of like, you know, she's rich with no heirs. Like you're leaving money on the table, buddy, even though she's clearly going to die. I forgot that that was the setup. Yeah, that's so fucked. It's so fucked. It's like even the doctors can't help but think of her in monetary terms. And you get the sense that that uh, that uh, uh, Maurice's character, who's described as being a former tennis champion and an athlete, is some kind of layabout who set his sights on her for money from the beginning. Getting. you oh, know you get sure. you get the sense that there was never a moment in which they were really in love that he had just sort of like taken hold of her you know like a violent crime from the beginning you know that he had just just taken hold of her like you know like roots growing around somebody dragging them down into the ground yeah and that it was never about love and that's been her whole life that she's wealthy and it's just her whole life um there's that but, but even more disturbing to me is just that i didn't realize she was so obviously as close to death as these guys make it out to be as they leave yeah her, you know you're like thinking like oh she'll be okay but it's like no she's ready to die like you know this yeah. is it like these guys really planned it out perfectly and she is at the very edge and they, they, they just need a slight shove to like yeah well i over. love I love the intensification. They clearly, there's a, when they're first murdering him, Signorette comes out of the bathroom and um, Vera Clouseau is leaning against the bed, sort of praying and trying to get a hold of herself. And Simone Signorette gives her a very quick look that's like, oh, great, she's going to fucking die, I think. And but keeps going through the thing. And if you know what's coming, you see this look, it's played very great. Like she hesitates and it can read like, should I help her out? But you can actually see in her like it worked. We got she her. She doesn't overplay you know? it though. That's what's great. Yeah, she's really like playing. You know, uh, uh, playing a woman acting a role. Yeah, in a way that like John Cassavetes does so well in Rosemary's Baby. You know, <laughs> you yeah, just really like appreciate like that she's like stuck to this role to the point that almost where it's uh, finally revealed the big you know twist ending, and she runs up and grabs him in her into her arms and kisses him and says the school's ours or whatever. You know, it's like it's almost feels phony 
because you know you've you love this character so much and you've like really bought into this fake person that she's being and her strength and her de- determination to get this guy that it's like oh no that was all a fucking lie like we've literally not seen this person this real person this entire movie it's yeah. all been an act and it's like crushing you know yeah but it's also perfect it's a twist that's like of course the mistress wants the white the rich wife dead you know what i mean when the plot is revealed you're not like what you're like of course that's what it is you know what i appreciated watching it this time you know with wages of fear to get the trucks for wages of fear it was apparently really hard like he wanted to like find these really big trucks and they had to like search all over france for like the biggest truck in france right like in all of france they found apparently like the biggest truck that existed at a junkyard. I like that they attempted to find the smallest truck in all of France for this. The little car they drive around <laughs> is like a fucking clown car. Watching it this time when Maurice drives in it at the beginning, it looks it looks fucking ridiculous how tiny <laughs> this car is. Yeah, it's absurd when the drunken sailor tries to climb in. It's a great <laughs> moment too. I love um. that look at the mess this animal made back there. And it's like, that is funny. It does look like he peed on there. That is pretty funny. <laughs> um, the other cast, the sporting cast is, you know, stacked with Clouseau regulars. You know, you got yeah. uh, Pierre Lequay, who uh, playing one of the teachers. He was in Murder Lives at 21. He was the doctor in Lake Corbeau. He was the cab driver who has a significant part in uh, Quas de... <laughs> Gay Days Au Fair. Gay Days Au Fair. Um, you got... Uh, Why did, just from now on, call it Police HQ. That's the title of that movie from now on. No, I'm going to get it. I swear to God, I'm going to get it someday. (laughs) I'm determined. We got to do more more of these podcasts about Clouseau. Um, The other teacher also, uh, uh, Noel Roquefair, was in uh, Lake Corbeau as well. And then most significantly, I would say, was Charles Vanell, who, of course, played Joe in The Wages of Fear and would go on to be in La Verite. And uh, in a personal You know, they originally wanted John Gabin for the Joe role in Wages of Fear. Wouldn't that have been fucking terrible? Yeah, we talked about this before. That's a bit terrible. Wouldn't have worked. Um, But then the the Melville connection, he was also in Magnet of Doom with uh, Belmondo. Yes, playing Joe. Essentially playing playing Joe Joe again. Joe, basically, exactly. Uh, What what if Joe lived from the mud? (laughs) Spoilers for Wages of Fear too. Gotcha. Climbed out of the mud, got his legs uh, <laughs> fixed or, or replaced. And uh, yeah, um, but he plays Inspector Alfred uh, Fischer, which I have no idea if that's an Alfred Hitchcock knock or not. The fact that his name is Alfred. I don't think it comes up in the movie at all. He's you know what I felt this time is he is so Columbo. In I had that, that role that I would be Falk. shocked to yes. hear that he didn't inspire Falk. Yes. He is so much like Columbo that it's like Falk, Falk must be doing an impression of this. It's just so close to it in his mannerisms and his looks and the, same and the faces he makes and the way he goes to leave and constantly stops to turn back. It's just, it's so Columbo. He's almost like the cop equivalent of Michael Myers in a way because he is so slowly following everybody everywhere. <laughs> and you're like, how's he going to like get a, like a, ahead of this case if he can't even keep up with anybody? But that's a very Columbo kind of thing, too. Uh, I definitely had that same impression. And it's funny that they decided to go the opposite direction of uh, Louis Jouvet and um, uh, Cause d'Affaire. Yeah. Case d'Affaire? I'm probably saying it wrong, too. It's K-Days <laughs> Affaire. 
I think. Kaze Ofer, uh, who is, you know, basically just strips his opponents down to the bone right in front of them, you know. Yeah. Kind of like, like just so like, severe. So, yeah, exactly. The kind of cop you would never want to, like, be on the wrong end of. This is a guy who seems like, is this guy even a cop or a PI or what is he? He's just kind of hanging around the morgue. Like, what is he even doing? He's so <laughs> weirdly inserted into this film uh, in a way that is fascinating to me. But yeah, his, 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 his demeanor, his, you know, is slouching around you know just kind of like bothering people you know and clearly being like a, a pest and yeah his, uh, and his, just to, and just old you know yeah the way he dresses the people in his net yeah, yeah the people in his net reacting like great great enough goodbye goodbye <laughs> colombo goodbye gotcha <laughs> thinking like this guy doesn't know anything get out of here you know it's the same it's very interesting yeah a and lot his of it, reaction you know, too to where she confesses to him where yeah. he has this, you know, response of like, it's like sympathetic to her, but also like, yeah, I know, I know all this, you know, like I figured yeah. it out already. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, similar kind of dynamic to the people that Columbo comes across in his show. He does watching it, though, this time is like, well, you know, you could have given her the fucking heart attack watching her while she sleeps. What's your plan, my man? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, you. it's that's another fascinating thing is like he decides to show up after she's died so he can arrest the end of the culprits and it's like could he have saved her how long has he been standing there you know like he could have walked and be like okay i'm gonna stop this you know before it happens he waits until she's down cold dead on the floor before he steps in to say well 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 what are we here yeah like like what's his but motivation he, it's but he also i i think he also for i think the scene he has with her he's supposed to be getting the sense of like oh she's on the way out too you know what i mean yeah. i think that he has a like there's nothing to be done for her since that the doctor's she's already have... dead that she's <laughs> it's gonna yeah. kill her one way or another just finding out she's been victimized in the way that she has maybe you know yeah maybe it's, has, like, i i agree that it definitely i like that it respects the audience of like you know why this character's here he's gonna get him he got him good night like let's not you know like this doesn't need quick. to be yeah. this doesn't need to be a five minute scene this can be 15 seconds you know why he's here you know what he's gonna do that's i'm not we're not gonna insult your intelligence by making this a, a 10 minute scene you know we're just gonna we're gonna get him that's what happens here John Gaban maybe could have played this character. <laughs> I love I love Vanel in it though. Should I be... know, no, he's great. He's great. The fact he's... that he's this, this tiny little dude hanging around everyone. He's basically the size of Vera Clouseau, the only other character in the movie who is basically eye level with Vera Clouseau. <laughs> um, one thing, you know, we're comparing it again to Wages of Fear. Watching it this time, I was impressed by how well he does details without overplaying them. Like when the wicker chest is introduced, sliding down the attic steps and hitting the ground in front of Vera Clouseau, it's got like an objective danger and heft to it immediately, but it's not, it's just a wide shot that it's like, like he doesn't step on it too hard. It's just like, here's this object that's going to be important. And then that object has some kind of mental permanence in you for the rest of the movie that every time you see it, you're like, oh, there's that thing. That thing makes me uneasy because of the way it's been introduced, like almost crushing Vera, you know? <laughs> and then we see it for the rest of the film. We remember it from that moment and it's been introduced as like a, um, as a dangerous, heavy thing, you know? But also just stuff like, like when well, the, the women two boys too show it to uh vanel yeah you know, like i a... love that like i think we fucked up <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
but also there's the uh, the moment where like um he's in the bathtub and the the tablecloth is over it and the tap is just dripping down on it it's just such a simple shot but it's so intensely unsettling you know just that like little tap you just have a sense of like time and permanence and physicality to the scene you know like it's mm-hmm. just such a perfect detail to put you as the audience in that spot without being overplayed in any way or when um or when uh maurice realizes the women aren't there that they've gone out of town right and he's like where are they because it cuts to the table he doesn't even say where are they i don't think and you see their uh two empty places at the table with like flies on them like crawling around the table it's just such a perfect shot of like the seediness of what they've left behind and them not being there the it's rot- just the rotten fish that he gets <laughs> the the rotten salad uh the old wine the cheap wine that he buys such a cheapskate motherfucker this guy yeah but i think my favorite cinematic detail is when he finally goes to drink the the poison the dosed whiskey right and there's a shot of his throat as he take drinks down the first glass of whiskey maybe not the first glass but because uh, he downs that one really quick when he sits down in the chair he's drinking the whiskey and there's a shot of his throat and it's just perfect right the shot selection is perfect because you're feeling him drink it you're seeing it literally get drunk you're feeling him ingest the stuff that's going to kill him right um and you can imagine um how hitchcock would have done it and how much he would have stepped on it how it would have been a zolly or like a spinning camera zooming in on it kind of thing right that it would have made it into a stylistic gesture as opposed to an artistic one this is compared to the poisoned wine in uh notorious exactly exactly uh that's a perfect comparison is the bottle of dosed whiskey is on the table this whole scene and every shot is constructed around it being near the edge of frame being on the edge of frame being visible so you're hyper aware of this whiskey without it having a light in it and a camera on it you know all of the notorious stuff where it's stepped on it and i think that 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 stuff is what i would call stylistic gestures in hitchcock and this is what i think of as an artistic gesture and i really think that's the difference between them is that i think that you can take style so far it loses its art and that's one of the things that I am hesitant about with Hitchcock is that you can take things so far that they become lacking in artistry. And this movie really knows how to how to be just as narratively uh, tension wise effective as Hitchcock, but does it without sacrificing its artistic texture and veracity and the truth to be found in it. it that it doesn't make it into a movie in some way i think that when you're talking about the differences between it and le corbeau and wages of fear it's always tempting to say well this is more of an entertainment this is more of a pure movie sure. but it's not that it's not it's every bit as much as artistically textured as the others i think it's just narratively so pared down to pure thriller you know what I mean? To pure movie, to pure cinema in some way that it that it does feel different than them. But I think it takes something away from it to say it's just a movie the way I think of the majority of Hitchcock films is just a movie, you know, we, like Dial M for Murder is just a movie, even if you like it. It's not it's just a movie, man. Rope is just a movie, you know? Yeah. 
Let me certainly sabotage more. saboteur's secret agent. Certainly these things are just movies, you know? <laughs> Let me tell you about a moment that I went back to three or four times this time. It's when uh, she goes to the hotel, right? She's um, the, the, His suit that he has been drowned in has been returned from the dry cleaner. And they don't know who did it, but they find they go to the dry cleaner to ask about it. And they give them yeah. this hotel key. And oh they go to the God, hotel. I love it. Yeah, which has been... Uh, <laughs> They've already they already asked somebody about what this hotel. They're like, oh yeah, it's a very nice, you know, it's a very wholesome hotel. And they go there, and it's a shot where they it follows them into the elevator, and then this couple comes out, and they come down and they walk all the way out to the. It follows them out of the hotel, follows this couple out to the exit. It's for some reason it's ten seconds longer than it should be. After they you know go upstairs, it follows this couple who we don't know who the hell they are, and I just wondered like. Why do you do that? Like, why did he follow these people? And it's just interesting to me. Like, on the one hand, it's like, here's what a happy married couple looks like, everyone. Just take it in for a minute because we've been, you know, we spent an hour and a half showing you a disastrous, horrible married couple, uh, you know, a horrible relationship. Or it's like, you know, we're just, we're establishing that this is a wholesome hotel and these people are like, you know, seem very like, you know, well-kept and like regular people. Yeah. And they're leaving. And it's like, this is a part of the world where like, it's not like the school, you know, it's not corrupt and horrible. Like maybe there is, there are sunny people in the world somewhere, but we're just not going to focus on them for too long. You're going to get a glimpse of them, but like, that's it. Like then they're gone and we're back into this world of Diabolik. It's just really interesting. Well, I think it is, I think it is supposed to be evidence that you're judging at that point of, is this a real hotel for happy couples? Is this a hookup spot? What is the meaning of this hotel? Let's judge by looking at the couple coming out. Mm -hmm. Is it for liaisons? Is it for living? Is it for bachelors? Is it for swanky married couples? Right. And I think that you're supposed to be looking at it as evidence. And I think that you're exactly right. The evidence you take away from it isn't anything about the hotel, but like, oh, look what a regular couple looks like. Look how depraved we've gotten in this world. Look what normalcy looks like. I thought you were going to mention the moment where she goes in the room and she's standing there and the door with the mirror pops open behind her and seems to open by itself and she appears in the mirror and there's this very long moment like who's going to come out and then it's this extremely tubby weird looking cleaning man who sort of inches into the frame it's such a truly bizarre moment and truly unsettling in ways you can't place it has a similar feeling to the ending of vertigo when the nun walks up and you're like holy shit what the fuck is this you know and it's (laughs) like oh it has a similar like what what the fuck am i seeing here kind of reaction to that yeah, well, I mean, again, it gets right back into the world of Diabolique with the introduction <laughs> of this character, where it's like, oh my God, get out of this room with this fucking slovenly guy who's leering at her, you know, as he's talking uh, and knows way too much about her husband's activity inside of the hotel room, you know, he only comes here at night. Uh, you know, you're just kind of immediately back. Well, but he's but he's wrong because he doesn't come during the day and then the night guy doesn't see him either. So maybe he never comes there at all. It's a it's a great character. The way it wants you to consider evidence and try and put together the mystery is phenomenal because it wants you to build a false mystery because that's what the the antagonists of the film are doing. That's what the devils of the film are doing is they're building a false mystery full of red herrings and false leads. So when everything turns out to be a red herring the empty hotel room the suit you know it's not the dissatisfaction that you get when reading like agatha christie and you're like oh man give me a fucking break you know that's why that guy got shot you know unrelated 
outstanding bill at a hotel, you know, and you're like, what? God damn it. You know, like, uh, or, or it was just, it was just a leaf he found, you know, yeah. what, that's why it was in his pocket. It doesn't have that dissatisfaction that a lot of mysteries had because every red herring and false lead has been planted there by the villains to be a red herring and a false lead, right? Like when it doesn't add up, it's because the villains have created it. So it doesn't add up, which is, <laughs> yeah. This is going to lead to the next thing I was going to say, but uh, who who is that dead body in the river anyway? Did they kill somebody and put him in the river? Is that what happened? No, I think there was just from that. I think it's just there was a body in the river and she sees the newspaper headline and is like, oh, this will be great to like goose her and make her upset. You know, very, very convenient for her. I mean, I guess they do mention that like lots of people fit that description of the body. So I guess it just kind of played into their hands. Yeah. But, but that's also comes after a scene where Vera is like, I'm going to call the police. And I think it's also supposed to be like, yeah, see, you don't need to go to the police. There you go. Bye. Yeah. You right. Know? Well, I, I wouldn't put it past Michelle to actually flat out murder somebody to like help their product. <laughs> um, but that leads to another moment. That's like the, that couple coming out of the hotel, the transferring of the body in the morgue when she goes to see if it's her husband. Oh, I love that. I fucking love it. It's so amazing that we follow the body all the way from the meat locker down, down the hallway into the elevator up to her, you know, and there's no dialogue. There's no major character in this scene. It's just this long scene of this body who's going to turn out, of course, to be a complete stranger going from one place to another. This like fatalism that's just in the movie all by itself, completely isolated. It's just like that is that's that's what i want to see in a movie right there it's incredible you know when you when you worked in the morgue i always pictured it were looking like that in my mind it either looked like that or reanimated <laughs> I, wish, morgue. I wish it looked interesting like that just a big baroque like <laughs> hallway as your morgue yeah where like everybody well, has their own room apparently you know what <laughs> i was thinking <laughs> what i was thinking watching this time i had a really weird thought of like god it's so like depressing and disrespectful that like silly little coffin coffin being placed on like the like wheelie thing it's not even like a wheelbarrow it's just like a little wheeled pallet that it's being moved on this is so disrespectful to like the dead and that's so depressing you know to think of your loved ones being moved around like that and i was like well but imagine if one of your loved ones was alive in there then it's fucking hilarious you know, then it's like, this is a ridiculous way to be wheeled around. Maybe this is actually like, you know, that's pretty funny. You know, maybe your loved one, maybe it's not disrespectful. Maybe it's just like funny and they would find it funny that this is how their body is being treated <laughs> after the immortal coil has gone off. Just the sheer ridiculousness of our corporal existence being like brought into play. Like, well, we got to keep them cold or it'll stink. And then we put them on this little wheelie thing and wheel them over to a bigger wheelie thing and then uh, bring them out to the other room in this like tiny ridiculous frenchman's coffin yeah it's wiseman-esque i would say in <laughs> you know all i've been, think been able to think about since yesterday is uh david lambert uh adding to his great excellent unforgiven thread with that yeah. little snippet from the shootist uh where as a boy the the main character uh had to uh dig up his aunt you know along with his or his grandmother and uh the body had bloated so much that it was like ripping the co like it was destroying the coffin you know like it was coming apart the seams as they were trying to transport it and it's just like oh i have not been able to get that image out of my head ever since reading that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
unrelated but cough and talk yeah i don't know what i'm going to do when that thread is complete my life's going to be over <laughs> um I, I love that thread so much right. um yeah this what else do we need to talk about with this movie we haven't talked about the school kids at all you know another thing this poor movie's Moine, full of poor moine <laughs> poor kid uh, the little details that we're talking about too when she faints when they drain the pool and the body is in there i love the way the school kids all go out the window right that they just yeah. sort of jump out the low window to go out to her and i was thinking about this time too because a lot of i i never really buy it necessarily especially because they're not super cruel about him but that the story of Clouseau is like Clouseau versus the French new wave and he's sort of set against them and he's left back to the you know cinema du papa tradition of quality stuff but that's not really how it is Chabrol's like I liked him we played cards he was really nice to me when I was a young filmmaker and Truffaut doesn't like hammer him really he doesn't like Diabolique but he doesn't like hammer Clouseau's movies the way he does the other you know previous generation like the film Just the people seems nuts to be a huge hitchcock fan like Truffaut and not like diabolic seems crazy to me yeah but it's it's just you know they don't really hate him but they're seen as being some like conflict and lanfar is seen as being um somehow a, a response in la verite even to the french new wave and i think lanfar is a, a little bit of that you know i think he's he said it was and he's trying some camera tricks out and stuff but i i think that stuff really gets overstated in comparison to like where the real rivalries and antagonisms were um and in fact watching it this time the movie i kept thinking about with the kids was les mistons mm -hmm. is sure. the way the kids behave in this movie uh i it's not that it's similar to les mistons they both feel inspired by zero for conduct they yeah. both have some of that zero for conduct in their blood. You know, the way 400 blows and Les Mistons really wouldn't exist without without zero for conduct. This movie also sort of, its depiction of kids wouldn't exist without zero for conduct. They've just got no some question. of that in their no blood question. in some way. You even see the kids, you know, as much as scared as they are of, of the principal, Michelle. And yeah. how much they, they, you know, clearly are rebelling against him in a lot of ways. They also admire him. Like they're talking about him having two women, like, you know, they're talking admiringly of him getting like all the wrong, you know, uh, adults being all the wrong, like encouragement from these adults. And it's like, oh, they're just going to grow up to be horrible too, aren't they? I saw them sniffing a bottle. What was in it? Whiskey, you idiot. <laughs> that same one that they're getting the poison together. Like the kids don't even know what they're witnessing. Yeah, and I love poor, poor Monat. Is that how you say his name? Who's who's accused of seeing the principal and has to uh, stand in the corner. I love when he's finally released the way he sort of backs away with his back up against the wall and then scuttles <laughs> away like how afraid he is. Or he's when great. they... Or when they call lights out later and the one kid jumps across all the beds to get to his empty bed when they call lights out. There's just so much great kid stuff like that. Or when they're like fucking around in the empty classroom and the older kid is sees Beerus Cluzo coming back and is like, hey, she's upset. Everybody calm down. And you they all stop and you can tell they all have a human relationship to her, whether it's they all have sort of schoolboy crush on a teacher or she's the only one who treats them right. They do want to stop they don't want to be a headache when she's feeling bad. And they do all look at her very attentively, like, 
mm-hmm. witnessing her pain, witnessing her unhappiness and having some human relationship to it. That's a great moment. It's also a great way to establish the Nicole character when we first see the two male teachers leading the kids out and they're all unruly and they're running up and down the hallways and they're completely unmanageable. And then hers come out and they're all like perfectly lined up. And and she's clapping going one, two, yes. three, three, to keep them moving in unison. And they look miserable. I love how <laughs> yeah. miserable her kids look too. Um, not that the kids have a big role in it, except for the skin diving champion. Don't you hear? He's a champion. <laughs> that kid is great when they throw the kids it's it's an interesting movie it does have that that um that true foeish quality of the kids hanging around sort of the fringes of adulthood it has that les Mistons quality that les Mistons is about them spying on the on the older lovers you know and this has that same movie of kids is fring- hanging around the fringes of adult sort of de- depravity and emotions in some way yeah and adult picking desire. Up on it, which is very corbo-esque you know that these kids are going to be like negatively influenced by the corruption of these adults that they're forced to hang out with um lovely movie i feel like somehow this is one of those real quick before sorry before we get off that and get to lovely movie uh we just kind of like mentioned the gothic quality of the film a little bit because it's you know (laughs) it really is part ghost story you know yeah uh the the photo of him showing up in the school photo in the window is like the innocence you know and of course you know you're around kids you know it's he has that kind of and I was thinking mm-hmm. her like her like notorious see-through negligee at the end of this movie is so romance novel cover. It just has like gothic romance novel cover of like the woman in like the see-through nipple piercing negligee holding a, a single candle with a, you know, a castle behind her on the front cover. It just has that quality so much to it. And yeah. and, and you're right. The ghost story thing, it, it is trying to make you think it's a ghost story. And I appreciated this time how how it does not break its its poker face at all it takes it all the way to the end like that scene you mentioned where the kids show the detective the um wicker basket up in the attic and he finds the the tablecloth in there that's been used to wrap up the wet corpse and they look at each other and are like one of them's like i have a terrible feeling and the other one looks and is like that i think we screwed up you know i that we screwed up um it's it's playing you're like oh no those poor kids they gave the game away you know it's still having these small throwaway scenes as though the real story is happening as though they've really murdered this guy and it really does not break its its face it does not it does not break its poker face at all up until the very last second until the reveal which i really appreciated this time oh absolutely and when you know, you know what it's all about. When you're watching it for the third or fourth time, as we 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 are, uh, you appreciate even more that you know this use of guilt as a murder weapon against this woman. You know, the preying upon her like inherent decency and morality, and making her question reality itself is like a real forerunner to great horror films. You mentioned, you know, we're doing this for October. You know, it's a, some a horror film. Uh, it sets up, you know, Carnival of Souls, Repulsion, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, you know, all these films that are about a woman, you know, going through a mental breakdown and usually because of the people around her or like her environment. And, you know, this is what we're watching. We realize at the end we weren't watching a murder mystery or like what happened to the body or is there a ghost? We're watching like these people praying against this woman literally 
psychological psychologically torturing her to death yeah i stepped on here scaring jessica to death i stepped on it i'm sorry john (laughs) no that though they scare to death that's what they do Um, literally do it no i know i was agreeing i didn't i didn't mean to step on what was a a good (laughs) observation and a and a good line um yeah this movie i think is is genuinely interested in psychology too. One of the things that I think is particularly uh, cruel about this movie is how it uses feminine solidarity uh, as abused yes. women's solidarity as a front to play mm-hmm. its trick. That's so exceptionally cruel to an audience. That's sort of like women are sisters who are both suffered on a man and are going to get them, you know, goodbye or all kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and just playing that against the audience, you know, but it's also, it's an insight about abuse and how abuse functions and what abusive relationships are. And that both of them, never uh, cigarettes character is still in his throes at the end right and we even see throughout that that virzu clouseau's character doesn't have it in her to really end it even as she's being sexually assaulted and abused and raped she can't even go through with the divorce she's still under his sway and control in some way you know and sort of i think that it's that it's it has a very cynical but true vision of how people in the throes of abuse behave, which is not as perfect victims who behave correctly and act nobly, but people who are being psychologically twisted and gnarled by the abuse they're suffering and end up in a in in intertwined with their abusers in some way and the fantasy of the abuse people are going to find solidarity this feminine solidarity as women and push back against this patriarchal this sort of classically patriarchal boarding school vision of a a school full of boys push back against that patriarchy it's such a cruel trick to play on the audience but again unlike uh, Hitchcock it's a very true statement it's a very cynical observation but what it has in its favor is that it's humanistic and sympathetic and true you know well it's part of what makes that ending again that reveal of nicole who she really is that much more devastating because you've seen the scene where michelle comes to the town and is confronting her about the divorce and you're like i just wish nicole would come in and put a stop to this like she needs she needs to feed off of that strength if she like had more yeah. Nicole's strength and uh you know the idea that nicole is doing this more for christine than for anything else that she actually wants to help her get out of this relationship and keeps telling her things to encourage her to say you know you need to be rid of this guy and it's just devastating that it's all an act you know you cannot believe it at the end I agree. It's uh, it's it's so it's maybe it's maybe the cruelest thing ever put on film in a lot of ways. But I think, but it's it's but it's not an exercise. Yeah, yeah, it's not an exercise in cruelty the way that like Kubrick or Refn can be just empty exercises in cruelty. You know, it it really has something very truthful to say, or or what people would say about Haneke. It's not that Hanukkah. It's not that kind of of movie either. You know, it's as much as I love uh, of Haneke. It's it's different than that. It's a different feeling and a different vibe. It's fun fundamentally that's the thing is it's it's this is fundamentally an entertaining movie as well which i think is also sort of strange about it is this is not 
an impossibly heavy, hard movie. It just isn't. It somehow manages to strike a light tone. And I think that comes from his experience writing lighter thrillers early in his career and, and his experience working with K. Days Are Fair and Murder at 20, Lives at 21 yeah, and the sure. films he wrote for Continental that he and does. It, uh, and it ends on a lighter note, too, with that little you know epilogue where the kids are you know relevant again because he says... I saw her, she gave me my slingshot back. And it kind yeah. of brings back this idea of like, oh, maybe this was a ghost story all along. Maybe she has found some kind of peace or happiness, you know, in yeah. there, uh, you know, being, you know, reve- uh, uh, revealed by the, the inspector, you know, John, there's something. Monat is a known fabulist. I cannot believe that you are believing him at all. <laughs> he yes. told he told the kids last week that at the circus he got in a fight with the lion. And you're going to believe anything he says? A lion? This... Can you believe that? <laughs> anything this little dude says. Um, we've touched on everything in my notes. I think or everything relevant. The one thing that I want to mention to you: Did you know that he was um, trying to adapt Laughter in the Dark for a long time? I did know that. Yeah. Isn't that that seems like I'm not. Um, I'm not one to lament films that never got made, but uh, a Clouseau version of Laughter in the Dark sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. I can't actually wish. That's like probably top five of my wish, you know, unproduced uh, films that actually existed. It, because it's, that. it's because it is funny. He makes this movie and then it's, you know, Les Espions, I, I think is interesting. I think it's ultimately not yeah, a I successful throw, movie. I should, my, I should throw my chips with Les Espions as well, because I... I agree. I wouldn't recommend it as a great movie to anybody, but I like it a lot. I think it's yeah, a, it's a it's a fun movie and it has a lot to recommend. Honestly. It's Ustinov is great and he yeah, carries well, it. He's used to you know, it's 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 perfectly good. Vera Pluzo is good in it too, although it's a very small part. Um, it, you know, but it's not. It's not great. It's an interesting idea. I sort of wish he hadn't been burdened with the time period in some way. I wish he had taken that idea and moved it around somewhere. Mm. But um, then he tries to make L'Enfar. He makes La Verite and La Prisonnaire. And those movies just aren't good. Yeah, those movies are, are are not good for everybody who sees the Lonfar test footage and is like, oh, that would have been awesome. It's like watch La Prisonnaire because it it has a fair amount of camera experimentation in it and it sucks. You know, yeah. and it really, it really does suck. And that's the other thing is I saw an interview with him where he said he was talking about how he had been inspired by Lelouch and wanted to do a Lelouch type thing with it. And you're like, oh, yeah, when we think of the French New Wave, we think of Godard and Truffaut, but like regular people were thinking of like Lelouch who had these huge fucking hits, right? Like regular people, you know, when you think about like whatever, you know, uh, American independent cinema is you're like yeah jim jarmusch but regular people are like yeah christopher nolan you know what i mean darren aronofsky and you're like oh yeah i forgot what people think just hearing him reference like lelouch is like lelouch was the french new wave well, i guess he technically is i wouldn't think of him that way but um it's, it's also like criterion collection here's a message to you <laughs> it's got to mean something that you release le corbeau wages of fear and diabolique it means nothing when you also release La Verte. You know? <laughs> um, poor La Verte. Poor any <laughs> trying to do Bridget Bardot and entering her serious face. Perfectly innocent 
completely mediocre movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a movie I feel pity for more than I dislike. But then he's done. He's all fucked up from tuberculosis. He can't he can't work anymore. Vera died. Um, and I think that you can see he's unmoored without Vera. I think that he's artistically and spiritually unmoored. Although you always hear about how he moved to Tahiti after she died. And apparently they had a very tumultuous, stormy relationship. And everybody's like, he's so depressed and heartbroken. He moved to Tahiti. And then every photo of him in Tahiti is like him partying on the beach with like topless native ladies. And you're like, he doesn't look so sad in these photos. <laughs> Everyone grieves differently. All these photos of him in Tahiti are like him at like a pig roast drinking like, you know, some <laughs> beach drink with some naked ladies just uh, looking like having he, a luau. Exactly. <laughs> just looking fucking thrilled to be there. I'm not sure how how heartbroken he was. That's fine. The um, other depiction of him in his old age is like an old man sitting around listening to, you know, classical comp compositions having, you know, Billy Friedkin, you know, break down the door, say, Maestro, let me remake your film. And going, eh, sure, whatever. <laughs> he died while listening to something interesting. Fuck, I can't remember. It's it's some yes, it's, it's it's an opera. It's one of the Faust things. Yes. Um I can't remember specifically what, but it's uh, it's an opera with it's, Faust. It's a uh, uh Shikstosovich, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Shostakovich, we're, Just, we're Shostakovich. we Don't are. Don't worry, I'm keeping up the keeping everything. the tradition up. Keeping the oh my up. good, uh, but that made me think about like why don't more people listen to music while they're dying? Like if I knew I was really ill, I would just have music on 24 hours a day to like carry me out of there. But it'd be the Jonas Brothers. I know what your taste is. It would. I want to eat cake by the ocean in heaven. Um. <laughs> That's it. This is a lovely movie is what I was going to say. This this is a movie it's weird to describe as lovely because it is so insistently gross and cynical and full of fetidness and rotten fish and just, you know, this gross world papered over with a veneer of like class and decency, the way sunglasses cover up a black eye, right? That's the movie of this world, the way this uh, fancy boarding school full of rich kids actually is serving rotten fish that has to be doused in vinegar and onions just to be edible. Oh my God, the scene where he's making her eat the rotten fish horrible all of the kids are it's 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 so vile it's so vile um but this movie there's just something very very special about this movie this is a movie that like there's plenty of movies i i like that i think are very good plenty of movies i think are really interesting that are like i don't know what's what's comparable to it like eyes without a face or something that i like right. but there's something very special artistically about this movie they're just there's just something uh, he finds a way to make his cynicism true and lacking in bitterness and human and sympathetic which is so difficult maybe it may be entertaining and entertaining i was going to say maybe he's imamura is a good comparison but imamura is never as entertaining as this it's mm -hmm. sort of like the uh, the aesthetic philosophical mindset of imamura with like the pure showmanship of hitchcock it's really is a special movie in that way Definitely. And if it seemed like I'm knocking it to say, you know, I don't know if it's my favorite Clouseau, you know, I would also say uh, who has made two, who has knocked out of the park one after another, the way he did with Wages of Fear 
and Diabolique, well, they're filmmaker, you know, I think so close together, having just two masterpieces, one after another is like, uh, it's astounding. You know? It is. It's, it's the late nineties Broncos is what I'll say. This movie is, <laughs> this movie is Elway who was tooling around for a while. Definitely good. Getting his rings. This is what this movie is. Um, beautiful comparison that I'm sure our audience will appreciate. Uh, yeah, I like it. I, I don't think you're knocking it. I think there is a weird thing that does need to be acknowledged about it, which we've done thoroughly, which is that Wages of Fear is just such a towering achievement that it's weird to have the second massive achievement next to it that's so much more modest in scope and intention. It's a really, really funny pair in that way, is that he doesn't come out and make and make sorcerer right after wages of fear he doesn't come out and try and you know he doesn't come out and try and make the mirror and stalker you know kind of thing Mm -hmm. he comes out and makes one very amazing kind of movie and then one very very different but equally amazing kind of movie and i think that in and of itself is impressive but uh should also be noted that while wages of fear you know is a movie you could remake as a masterpiece Trying to remake this movie is going to be some <laughs> 90s dud with Chaz Palminteri that nobody remembers. Yeah, I was going to ask because I watched it again uh, recently when we decided we were going to do this episode, although it was like a month and a half ago now. And that was a movie I saw right after, like I rented Diabolique knowing the remake was coming out in high school and watched it like I watched them like a day apart, maybe the same day. I think I rented it on like a Thursday and watched the remake with Isabel, Johnny and Sharon Stone when it came out the the next day. And it's funny because as a teenager, I was like impressed by how well it did with it. I felt like this does completely fine with this. Watching them recently, it's like, oh my God, I understood none of the artistic subtlety of Clouseau's <laughs> and sort of the like dumb music video commercial director bullshit of the remake, you know, and it's and it's also <laughs> no one in the world will agree with me, but it's just like what a downgrade to Isabella Johnny from Vera Clouseau. She's just not much of an actress john i'll agree with you (laughs) she's just not much of an actress sharon stone sharon stone can can hold her own with the cigarette although like she's no cigarette obviously but just that like she's able to stand in the shadow at least is is but you know she can hold her own by being a a tough as nails broad she's got it in her i could see it i never saw it myself it was you know the Sharon Stone fatigue between Basic Instinct and Casino, you know? Where yeah. See, like every other movie had Sharon Stone in it. You uh, loved Last Dance, though. <laughs> you were like, mark my words, Last Dance will be better remembered than Dead Man Walking. But the funny thing is, neither are remembered. No yeah. one talks about either. Did Bruce Carsford um, direct that? Oh, God, don't tell me. I feel like Jesus Christ, have. I bet. It was somebody did. disappointing for sure. <laughs> oh, my but God. I, but I was going to say, I imagine it being like. I, it's got to be Fred Shapizzi. <laughs> it could be Shapizzi. I got to say, though, it's comparable to. Uh, I imagine it's comparable to like The Vanishing and the American version of The Vanishing, uh, with, uh, you know, obviously not being made by, remade by the same person, but. <laughs> Uh, uh yeah no it's not that far off you it, it is beresford i just looked it up oh my god oh, beresford you make it possible for me to recommend black rope you just make it impossible um 
no, it's it stays surprisingly close. You identified the correct problem with it, and that Chaz Palminteri is such a massive whiff. Uh, Maurice holds the film together. His presence, his performance, his attitude, what he is as an actor, as a character, holds the movie together. And if you just have him be a sort of obsequious one-note villain, the movie's nothing. The little the moment complete. that the little moment that Clouseau gives him on the train that we didn't bring up where he sees the young girl who's with her mother or whatever and gives her like the one once over and the mother makes the girl raise the book. He just like, <laughs> I guess I do love the sleaze bag just a little bit. You know? <laughs> well, it's also just that kind of confidence that, you know, Oh, they're in for it. They, they are, they're not mentally prepared for this guy. This guy's super confident. This guy's, uh, unflusterable in some way. Right. Unless he is somehow in on this plot, they are doomed. <laughs> <laughs> but how could he be in on this plot? What does it mean to send the, what kind of suit is it? It's like the Jack of Oasis. Anyway. Yeah. No, but when he's complaining for that brief moment, when uh, after she dies at the end, and he's like, oh, having to be thrown in that pool and, you know, having to stay in the wicker basket for so long he only gets like a brief moment to complain about all he's had been through and you're like oh yeah i guess i haven't thought about that how he's <laughs> had to live as a corpse for like 24 hours <laughs> staying in the bathtub all night and such it took me an hour to get out of the bathtub without making a noise um this movie i like it everybody watch it john do you have any closing thoughts only to say this to our listeners don't be diabolical. Do not destroy the interest that your friends may have in this podcast episode. Do not tell them what you have seen, heard, seen and heard. Thank you on their behalf. 